The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. So we started our class on the biblical covenants last Sunday. We didn't get finished, which was a surprise to me. Uh, you get used to it. Yeah. No comment on that. Uh, so, and it, we still have enough material left to where I didn't want to start the next one, the Noahic Covenant. I wanted that one to stand on its own. So what we're going to do today is review uh, what we covered last week. We'll cover what we didn't get to last week, and we will answer a question about whether or not God made a covenant with Adam in Genesis 1. That was actually something that I was going to do with the Noahic Covenant, and it works out good to do it this week. So again, this is a, a big picture study, not unlike what we did with the life of Christ, different from what we're doing in the book of James. Uh, it is a very important topic because biblical covenants do provide a framework for the plan of God, not only through the Old Testament, but really through the whole of Scripture. It's really uh, important to understand these covenants. We've talked about this both in hermeneutics class and last week, but when we're doing a big picture study like this, we want to do it in the order in which the revelation was provided. So rather than prioritizing the New Testament, which we tend to do, and, and that's not completely a bad thing, we want to see the whole Bible as the Word of God, and we want to start in Genesis and work our way through to Revelation. Now, all of these covenants that we're going to look at are all in the Old Testament, so we're really going just from Genesis to Jeremiah in this case. But... They provide the framework that goes through the New Testament as well. It doesn't stop in the Old Testament. We talked about different reasons for studying the Old Testament. Again, I, I can't say this with 100% authority by any means, but I'm not sure that other churches would spend the time that we're going to spend on studying the Old Testament. And the reason we do that is because we think it's really important. It's two-thirds of our Bible. Uh, it's the background for the New Testament revelation. Uh, the New Testament writers, their Bible was the Old Testament, and they assume that you're familiar with its contents and its storyline. Obviously, the same God is the author of both Testaments, and because so much of the character of God is revealed in the Old Testament, we don't want to neglect that. A lot of Old Testament prophecy that was fulfilled already in the first coming of Christ, but also a lot that's still to be fulfilled. We talked about when we went through the book of Revelation, how many over half the verses in the book of Revelation allude back to the Old Testament. It's never directly quoted, but again, John assumes that you, you know what the Old Testament prophets, prophets talked about, and he's really, um, he's really tying together all those prophecies that weren't fulfilled at Christ's first coming, especially, and especially the prophecies that, that do deal directly with Christ's second coming. When you read the Gospels, you're still reading under a mosaic economy. The, the real dividing line is at Pentecost. You've got things in the Old Testament like wisdom literature that are really important, really practical for us. They're timeless principles. Not everything is restated and reapplied in the New Testament. Doctrine of creation being a prime example, very important doctrine. And then two basic yet essential themes of the Bible begin in the Old Testament, the doctrine of the kingdom. Uh, which we've talked about some, and which is going to be interrelated with our study of the covenants and the doctrine of the covenant, covenant itself. We talked about two important hermeneutical principles. One is the progress of revelation and the fact that the Bible 
didn't come down of, out of heaven all at one time. God gave it over time, really over a period of 1,500 years. You know, justification has always been by God's grace through faith. But what that faith was in, the amount of revelation that had been given up to that point in time is what each generation has been responsible for. Context is also extremely important in the covenants, both the historical context in which each one of those takes place and just the textual context, which is always very important as hermeneutical principle. We talked about a very simple definition of a covenant as being a solemn and legally binding agreement between two parties to both do and not do certain things. Now, that's a very simple definition, and we'll flesh those out more as we look at each individual covenant. But we talked about how in Scripture we have covenants that are made between individuals. Uh, Saul and, or, I'm sorry, Jonathan and David was an example of that, covenant of friendship. It can be made between families. It can also be made between nations. And we have covenant language in the marriage relationship, something that we continue to, to do today, and also in international trade agreements. But all of these covenants, all the examples on this slide at least, are very different from the kinds of covenants that we're going to be looking at. The most theologically significant co covenants, and the ones that we're going to be looking at, are when God makes a covenant with a human party. And in that case, there's great disparity. There's not parity between the parties like there were in the earlier examples that we looked at. Because God is so much superior to man, uh, he doesn't negotiate covenants. He lays out what the covenant's going to be. Now, there are responsibilities on the other party's side in every covenant. You hear a lot about this concept of conditional and unconditional covenants. I don't think that's the best way to look at it. There, the covenants, the, or the way to think about each one of the covenants is there's a sovereign side, and that is that God lays out the terms of the covenant. Ultimately, he's going to make sure those terms are fulfilled. And then there's a human responsibility side. Even in the Abrahamic covenant, which is often described as an unconditional covenant, uh, there was responsibility on Abraham's side to obey. And this especially comes into play with the Mosaic covenant because you hear a lot of people that say that all the other covenants are unconditional. Only God is responsible to ultimately fulfill the conditions of the covenant. Well, I would argue that's true for the Mosaic covenant as well. And... There's human responsibility in each one of the covenants, but ultimately God is going to ensure that the things that he spells out in those covenants are going to be fulfilled. Might not be, you know, it might be in a different generation because of the disobedience of Israel at any point in their history. But ultimately, Israel will be the kingdom of priests and the holy nation that God designed them to be from the very beginning. So far in their history, they've not fulfilled that. I believe they do fulfill it um, in the millennial kingdom. So we went through just a very brief summary of each one of the covenants. Next week, we'll look at the Noahic covenant. Unlike all the other ones that we look at, this one's not made just with Abraham or his descendants. It's made with all mankind, both the redeemed and the unredeemed. And the essence of that covenant is God will never destroy the earth again by flood. Doesn't mean he won't destroy the earth again. Uh, Second Peter tells us that there is a judgment that awaits by fire, but not by water. The Abrahamic covenant is the most foundational of all the covenants that are made 
with the nation of Israel. Sorry, Kevin, I thought you had your hand up there. Uh, and in fact, when God makes this covenant with Abraham, the themes that are part of the covenant stipulations are picked up by the other covenants. One thing that's really important to understand is these covenants don't work in isolation from each other. They build on earlier revelation and even on earlier covenants. The Mosaic covenant, for example, is the means by which the promises that God makes to Abraham and to his descendants are fulfilled. And they're very uh, earthly kinds of blessings in addition to spiritual blessings. The Mosaic Covenant is, I don't know a better way to say it, it's the longest and most detailed of all the covenants as far as it's spelling out all that Israel was required to do. It set them apart to God as a holy nation. It regulated their life as far as the clothes they could wear, the food they could eat and couldn't eat. The, their calendar was regulated by this covenant, by what God had done in history for them as a nation. It promised blessing to them when they were obedient to the stipulations of the covenant and curses when they were disobedient. And again, you can say, well, that's conditional. Yeah, it was. And the generation which will receive the ultimate blessings of the Mosaic Covenant has not come to pass yet. It's still something that's future to us today. But ultimately, God will fulfill what he promised to do in blessing the nation of Israel. And I would argue that today, Israel's still under the Mosaic Covenant. They're still under the curses that have come about as a result of their disobedience. Yes, part of the nation is back in their land, but the whole nation is not there, and they're not living anywhere close to the conditions described by the prophets uh, being back in that land. For example, the other nations are not afraid of Israel the way that the prophets say they will be. The, Israel is surrounded by her enemies and often subject to attack. So they're not living in the peace and prosperity of the land that the prophets describe. And, and also, a lot of these other nations are occupying the land that God had given them they never conquered. Their, their country should be a lot larger. That's a good point. You know, the <laughs> boundaries are laid out in the Old Testament of what the promised land is, and Israel is not occupying all of those. So, you know, Israel has made returns to their land at different points in their history, including most recently, what, 1967, 68? But they're still not living in the land the way that the prophets described. And, and that's the way that we'll know the covenant's fulfilled is when they are living that way. Okay. Less known to us, I think, it's fair to say, is the priestly covenant spelled out in Numbers 25, made with Phineas and his descendants who will serve uh, as priest all the way into the millennial kingdom. And then the Deuteronomic covenant is basically a renewal of the Mosaic covenant with a new generation. Remember the original generation that came out of Egypt, God was very patient with them, but they continued to rebel against him. And ultimately, he said, okay, you guys won't, won't get to go in the land. Only Joshua and Caleb and their descendants. Uh, everybody else is going to die out in the wilderness over the period of 40 years. And your descendants will end up coming into the promised land. The Davidic covenant. Got the historical background in the Old Testament. The fact that God ruled through David and his descendants over the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom in particular. And he made a covenant with David, saying that he would never lack a man to sit upon the throne of, of David, which was his throne. I mean, the, all these kings were to rule on God's behalf. Uh, 
Now, that throne right now, and even since Zedekiah was the last king on the throne of David in the Old Testament, the throne itself is in suspension. There is no throne in Israel right now. There's no king ruling over Israel, much less the other nations. But the line was preserved, and it was preserved all the way down to the person of Christ. Christ is the son of David that will ultimately rule and fulfill the Davidic covenant again in the millennial kingdom. Then finally, the new covenant, which is not absolutely new. I believe that when Jeremiah speaks, and the Lord speaking through Jeremiah says, uh, I will write my law upon their heart. That's the law as originally given, both at Sinai and in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, there's some modifications, but they're very slight. And if you read, uh, again, I know I've referenced Ezekiel 40 through 48 a number of times. If you read through the, those chapters, you see, again, the temple, sacrifices, feasts being held, um, the land and being divided up amongst the 12 tribes. Where does all that come from? It comes from the law as given by God. Uh, and even Deuteronomy 30 talks about the fact that after they've gone through the blessings and the curses that have been laid out in chapters 27 and 28, and after they've been cast out of the land, there'll ultimately come a day where God restores them, brings them back as a nation. They'll come back, they'll have a circumcised heart, They'll obey, and the whole nation will be obedient in a way that they never have in their history. And Deuteronomy 30 even says, they'll obey the commandments that I'm giving you this day. So it's the same law. That's right. That's exactly right. Once it got to him, and, and it makes sense too, right? When he came and was born, he was born in Bethlehem as prophesied. He declared the kingdom of God is at hand. And he showed that he himself, through his works and his teaching, was that king, and he was rejected. So he, he is the ultimate king. He's God in the flesh. And he just didn't take the throne of David at his first coming. He'll do that when he comes back. Matthew 25 makes that very clear as well. So what the new covenant is, as much as anything, is a, an enablement for Israel to be faithful, to have the law of God written on their hearts, for their inclination to be to obey God rather than rebel against him as the Old Testament records so thoroughly. Okay, so that's what we covered last week. And we just want to talk now about some general concepts that have to do with all these covenants. These, are, again, are in the article that I sent out by Dr. Barrick. His article is on the Mosaic Covenant, but it really addresses the concept of covenant pretty well other than just the Mosaic. He also has a chart in there, and I'll show it this morning, that show how the covenants and the themes of the covenants relate to each other. So here's some of those concepts. These covenants were established by the divine sovereign, by God as the ultimate king on behalf of his people, Israel. The authority of the covenants resides in God and God alone. There is no human wheeling and dealing involved. And again, you might be able to do that in a covenant that you make with an individual or between families and nations. You can spell out and negotiate stipulations. God doesn't do that. It's really clear he doesn't do that. 
um, he lays out what they are in each case. <clears throat> Secondly, each one of the covenants is made with Abraham or his descendants. And again, that's after the Noahic covenant, not with anybody else. We read Psalm 147 last week. It says, he declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He's not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his ordinances, they have not known them. Now, that doesn't mean that the other nations are not impacted by these covenants. They are. Very definitely they are. It's through Israel that all the other nations of the earth will be blessed. But the law itself and the covenants themselves are made with Israel, with Abraham and his descendants, not with anybody else. Is that clear? <clears throat> Fourth, or thirdly, I think this is third. No Israelite was ever saved from his or her sin by obedience to covenant stipulations. And I, I bring this up, and I think Barrett brings it up in his article as well, because that's what dispensationalism is often accused of teaching, that there are two ways of salvation. In the Old Testament, it was through obedience to the law. In the New Testament, it's by grace. That's just a bad way to look at it. It's a wrong way to look at it. The God saved Israel and chose Abraham solely by his grace. They, they didn't do anything to merit that selection in the same way that we don't do anything to merit it as Christians in the church. And in fact, God had already chosen to redeem the people of Israel before the covenant was made at Sinai, right? He he makes this covenant with Abraham. Part of the covenant is that they're going to, his people, his descendants, are going to be slaves for 400 years in the nation of Egypt, and then he's going to bring them out. He did all of that before he made the covenant with them at Sinai. So he, he chose Israel not because they were worthy of being chosen, and they demonstrate really clearly through the Old Testament that they weren't worthy to be chosen. But he stays faithful to that covenant despite their unfaithfulness. And... Uh, their salvation is, again, by God's elective grace and not by merit, <clears throat> not by keeping the law. The law, in the same way, why do we obey the New Testament commands? Why do we obey the commands in the epistles? And why do we love him? Because he loved us and he saved us. We obey because God did what he's already done. And it was the same with Israel. God did all this for the nation of Israel, and he gave them the law in order that they might uh, express their love for him through obedience to that law. The covenant stipulations then were given as instruction for maintaining the relationship between Yahweh and his people, not for establishing it. And again, I, I would say it's the same for us today. Different law, although there's a lot of correspondences between the two, but we... We don't keep the word of God or keep God's commandments in order to gain favor from God. He's already granted us favor by his grace, and we keep it out of love for him. Next, God remains faithful to his covenants despite the people's unfaithfulness. You know, what's interesting is even as you're reading in the Pentateuch and as you're reading uh, at the end of Deuteronomy especially, God shows beforehand that Israel's going to be unfaithful. Now, I think they still had a choice. You know, God said he set before them the way of life and the way of death. And, and yet he anticipates before they even enter the promised land that they're, they're going to be unfaithful and they're going to rebel against him. And that's just another way for him to show 
his character through his faithfulness to the covenants and his, his love for the nation of Israel, that despite their rebellion, he ultimately uh, restores them as a people. That was built in in the covenants from the very beginning. Okay, this is an interesting one. Uh, none of the covenants superseded or nullified a previous covenant. Each covenant advanced God's program without abrogating earlier covenants. For example, and I said this already, the Mosaic covenant did not nullify the Abrahamic covenant. It was the means by which the promises of the Abrahamic covenant would be fulfilled. And you say, well, that's, that's an easy one to see. What about the Mosaic covenant? Wasn't it abrogated with the death of Christ? Certainly, if you look at the Mosaic Covenant through the lens of the New Testament, it sure seems that way. Paul's really clear that the church is not under the law. Well, <clears throat> I agree with that completely. I mean, I think that was an issue that was decided at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. But that doesn't mean that the law has been done away with. And again, I would argue that how do you explain a passage like Ezekiel 40 through 48 and other passages in the Old Testament that speak about nations having to bring sacrifice or they don't get rain. How do you explain that if the law has been completely done away with? The key is to understand the distinction between the church and Israel, to understand that the covenants were made with Israel and not with the church, and even the new covenant. I know that's going to raise some eyebrows. and we'll, I, I think it will become more clear when we get there, but even the new covenant is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's not us. And it's made in light of all that has happened in Israel's history up to that point in Jeremiah 31. Now, we're going to have to deal with the citations in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. We'll do that. We have to deal with uh, when Christ talks about at the establishment of the Lord's table at communion, after the uh, celebration of the Passover, that this is the, my blood is the blood of the new covenant. And it is. We're not going to disagree with that. But... It's also still part of the program that God has with the nation of Israel. And we'll look at that more when we get there. Is there any question about that now? Okay. I, I hope it will become more clear. And, and please uh, feel free to stop and ask questions if you, if you need me to. <clears throat> Subsequent covenants also built upon the themes that were first laid out in the Abrahamic covenant. And this is the chart that's in... Uh, Sorry, uh, in the article by Barak. And you see this concept of Abraham, God making a great nation from him, a multiplication of his descendants, such as the stars of the heaven or the seas of the, the sand of the seashore. Uh, that's the seed being formed into a nation. A particular piece of real estate is promised to Abraham. He has to leave his home country and go to another that God shows him. Through that, not only is Abraham blessed personally, and of course he's blessed in this multitude of descendants, but through him and through those descendants, all the other nations of the earth will be blessed. And then kingdom being, well, it's foundational in the Abrahamic covenant. That's going to be kind of the organizational structure for all of this, but it's going to be picked up and emphasized, particularly in the Davidic covenant down the road. But you see how... In subsequent covenants to the Abrahamic, you've got more prominent themes, but all of them, and the prominent themes are the ones that are in capital letters, all of them relate back to these foundational themes that are spelled out in the Abrahamic covenant. I think this is really important is to recognize uh, 
that these covenants work together to unfold the plan of God. They don't come in separate postal boxes. You have to see how they relate to each other um, as the plan of God is revealed and as it's culminated with Christ's return in the millennial kingdom. So <clears throat> that's the introduction that we wanted to make for the class. Again, we'll start the Noahic Covenant next week. But I want to talk a little bit about covenant theology, which is not what we're doing. We're dealing with the explicit covenants uh, in the Old Testament. And we're going to look at each one of those in their context. We're going to see how they connect to each other. We're going to see how they unfold the plan of God that way. Covenant theology is based on three covenants that are not explicit in Scripture. They're, th they're kind of theological constructs. They're a way that the people who initially proposed this feel like it's a good way to organize the whole of Scripture. How many of you are familiar with covenant theology already? Okay. So three basic covenants. One of them is often referred to as an Adamic covenant or a covenant of works. And we want to explore that a little bit here in this question. But the idea is that God made this covenant with Adam where he, he promised eternal life for perfect obedience and death for disobedience. And of course, Adam failed. So that covenant was, uh, well, I guess they would argue that it's fulfilled in the sense that it brought death into the human race. After that was a covenant of grace. And they basically subsume all the covenants that we're going to be looking at with Abraham and his descendants under one covenant of grace. What that allows them to do is to put all of the redeemed basically in one group. Some of these folks would argue that the church goes all the way back to Genesis. And again, we have a hard time with that because we see the church as being born at Pentecost unrevealed in the Old Testament scriptures. But because of the covenant of grace extending not just through the Old Testament, but all the way into the New Testament as well, all the redeemed go in one group. And then finally, there's what's, what they call a covenant of redemption, which is a covenant made between God the Father and God the Son, whereby God promised, the Father promises to the Son that he will make him the head of the redeemed in exchange for his coming, living a life of perfect obedience, and dying for the sins of the world. Now, that last one, <clears throat> I mean, I think those are true statements. Obviously, Christ is the head of the redeemed, and obviously he did those things. But that's not spelled out anyway in Scripture. In other words, there's not a place in Scripture you can go to and say, the Father's speaking to the Son, and he makes this covenant arrangement with him. And I think even some covenant theologians take issue with the way that's defined. That's a real basic summary of covenant theology. I got that from Wikipedia. There's other places where you can go. And I would encourage you. I, would, I really encourage you to flesh out your understanding of covenant theology. Just go to that place first. I don't know how many of you are fans of Wikipedia. I really like it. <laughs> but you can go there first and just read that article and get an idea of what covenant theology is, maybe in a bibliography that will refer you to other places where you can read about it more. <clears throat>
Adamic covenant for the covenant of grace as being as following that definition. Whereas the covenant of redemption, yes, you have God and the Father and God the Son saying, God says to the Son, if you go down there and redeem your people, then they'll be my people. And God the Son says, yes, I'll go down to earth. I will die on the cross so that you can, I can fulfill my part of the, of the, the contract. Yeah. I, I don't see the other two as being that. Adam, I mean, the Adamic covenant to me is like you tell your kid, if you do this, you're going to get smacked. And the kid does it, he gets smacked. That, I agree with that completely. No, that's right. That's exactly right. There, there is not those kind of things spelled out in Genesis 1. Now, there is a, a prohibition there, and like you said, it comes with a penalty. I don't see that as covenant language, and it, it's not referred to as a covenant anywhere else down the road. And we see that the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic covenants. Now, I have to make one uh, caveat here. The Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 is not called a covenant. But when you read Psalm 89, which is a commentary on the Davidic covenant, it is called a covenant there. And it does have that same kind of covenant structure is what you're talking about. One party telling, you know, laying out stipulations with the other party. So I agree with you. And not only do you not have that like you're talking about, you don't even have that conversation between the Father and the Son, even if you grant the legitimacy of the covenant of redemption. That's not in Scripture. It's kind of assumed. So when we ask the question, did God make a covenant with Adam? And again, I'm quoting this part from the article in Wikipedia. The covenant of works, also called the covenant of life, was made in the Garden of Eden between God and Adam, who represented all mankind as a federal head. Now notice, they don't give the reference there in Genesis 1. They give it in Romans 5. And I agree that Adam was a federal head. He was the head of humanity because once he sinned, we all became sinners because we were all in him. I don't disagree with that at all. Christ is obviously the head of the redeemed. And Romans 5 is indeed comparing those two headships. But that doesn't make what's, what's described in Genesis 1 a covenant. They go on to say that this covenant of works promised life for perfect and per perpetual obedience and death for disobedience. And again, like Andre pointed out, there's not really that promise in Genesis 1. There is the declaration that uh, you can't eat of this one tree, and if you do, the day that you do, you will surely die. Not agreeing, but just to kind of balance in fairness, would the argument be, well, you're doing the same thing with the Davidic in Psalm 89, um, and they're saying we're doing the same with Romans. There's details to be filled out. Okay, so, but Psalm 89 calls Second Samuel 7 covenant. It does. Well, I'm going to give you another place that they cite where they say there is a, a place in Scripture that refers to an Adamic covenant, and, and we're going to show that it's not. So, Adam and all mankind in Adam broke the covenant, thus standing condemned. And to me, as you look at what they're doing, they really need a covenant of works in Genesis 1 because they're going to make all the other covenants come under one covenant of grace. They have to have a covenant initially where man failed to make that work, it seems to me, to make their system work as a whole. Though it's, And they acknowledge this. One thing about Wikipedia is usually written by people that are proponents of that view, 
and that's okay. Though it's not explicitly called a covenant in the opening chapters of Genesis, the comparison of the representative headship of Christ and Adam, and he's talking about that in Romans 5, as well as passages like Hosea 6-7 have been interpreted to support the idea. So let's look at Hosea 6-7. This is a kind of a lament on Israel's disobedience. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. That's a very graphic way of describing the disloyalty and the covenant treachery of Israel and Judah's nation. Therefore, I've hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. In other words, God would much rather us be obedient from the get-go than say, okay, well, I can sin and then I can bring a sacrifice. That's the wrong way to look at it. He wants us to not have to bring the sacrifice in the first place because we didn't sin. And in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. You can see the, they're seeing that reference as a reference back to a covenant that God made with Adam. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of wrongdoers tracked with bloody footprints, and as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed crime. So at first glance, that might seem like a legitimate way to understand that, but Hebrew parallelism is going to help us a little bit here. Let's break that last part up into three separate stanzas, if you will. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There, where? There they have dealt treacherously against me. It doesn't say he. It says there. Then look at the next line. Gilead is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with bloody footprints. And then the next one. As raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed crime. What are Shechem and Gilead? Cities. What is Adam in this context? It's a city. In fact, it's a pretty well-known city. Joshua 3, 14 through 16. This is <clears throat> the context here is Moses has finished his exposition of the law in the plains of Moab. Uh, they're about getting ready to enter into the promised land. And here's what Joshua 3, 14 says came about when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan, the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest, that the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap, a great distance away at Adam, or Adam, the city that is beside Zarthan. And those which were flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. So I, I think clearly in the context there, he's just talking about the sinfulness of the nation, and he uses three cities to make his case. Uh, it's not talking about a covenant that was made with Adam. That's the only reference that they can produce, and I don't think it's valid. I just don't, I don't think God made a covenant with Adam in the garden. 
Okay, that's all we wanted to cover this morning. Again, that's an introduction. Uh, I would encourage you to read Genesis 6 through 9 for next week because that's the context in which the Noahic covenant uh, appears. It's, it's basically the entire record of the flood account. What, what questions can I try to answer this morning? I don't. I, I, I don't. I don't. I wouldn't see a covenant of redemption either, explicit in Scripture. Now, okay. It is. So, I agree with all that. I don't have any problem with deducting that kind of thing. It's not, not only not explicitly written, we don't know that what you just said took place in the form of a covenant between God the Father and God the Son. Uh, it's just we're not privy to inter-Trinitarian conversations, and the only way it would be is through the Scripture. So I don't disagree with the concept of what you described, that God from the very beginning had this plan. He knew man was going to fall, and it was a way for him to reveal another part of his character that wouldn't have been revealed otherwise. But I don't know that there was this conversation that the covenant redemption re describes between the father and the son where the father said, okay, if you'll go and do this, then I'll make you the head of the redeemed. Oh, I don't. Yes. The term covenant. Uh, yes. I Again, I think for them, having these three covenants is a good way to organize the totality of the story that's laid out in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. To me, the best way to understand that story is to deal with specific text as you work your way through and make your, that's more of an inductive approach. For them, they start with a system and then they, and they might accuse me of the same thing, but they squeeze stuff into that system so that their conclusions, I think, are faulty. For example, that one that we just looked at. I don't think that's a valid conclusion. And I don't think you can say that the church was in Genesis or in the Old Testament. There's no need to do that. And so part of it comes down, it's a very good question, part of it comes down to the question of is everybody saved throughout history, I mean, by faith in the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ? So on the one hand, you can say ultimately, yes, Christ paid for the sins of the whole world from furthest back in history. But did people like Moses know that? And did they believe? Is that what they believed in? I think you have a very hard time making that case from the Old Testament. Now, you can take certain New Testament references and try to read those and say, well, yeah, this right here says that the gospel was proclaimed to Abraham. I think you've got to be really careful about doing that. You've got to, like we did in our hermeneutics class, go back to the Old Testament, understand what it says in its own context, and, and it has integrity in its own context. I would argue that the, even in Christ's own public ministry, he didn't talk about his death and resurrection until two and a half years into that ministry. 
they believed on when he initially made his proclamation, they believed that he was the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament. Exactly. To them, that didn't make any sense at all. Um, so I, I want to be, and again, if you if you do go to Wikipedia and read the article, it'll become spelled out a little more clearly. Part of what they say there is that maybe they didn't necessarily know the gospel the way that we know it today, but when they came and brought sacrifices, that was a type. That was a type of Christ or a type of Christ's sacrifice. And when they did that in faith, in essence, they were believing in Christ himself. Well, again, I would say that they were following the law that was given to them by God. They were following the system that was spelled out in that law. And it doesn't talk about his son coming at some point down the road. So we can, from where we stand, we can look back and say, well, yeah, those are kinds of types. But for the believer in that age, I don't think he knew that. I don't see any evidence that he knew that. Yeah. Yep. Yes. But, you know, uh, you could make an argument that it is. Again, I don't know that, I don't think Adam and Eve understood it just from that act. Obviously, they understood God's love and care for them. They might have even understood that their own attempts to cover themselves were insufficient. I think I could see that. But from that one act to, to go from that to say, well, I believe that one day the Son of God's going to come in human flesh and die for the sins of the world. That's a huge leap. Who is the Father speaking to when he says, I will, put all, I will make all the nations your footstool and stuff like that? Isn't that kind of an agreement that he's making with the Son? If the Son does certain things, the Father will put all the nations yes. It's part of the Davidic covenant, and I think it was part of uh, the relationship that God had with every Davidic king, from David himself forward. Now, it won't be ultimately fulfilled until Christ, but we've talked about this in Psalm 2 when he says, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee, uh, sit in my right hand until I make the nations a footstool for thy feet. I think that was uh, a commitment to every Davidic king through the Old Testament period. They were considered sons of God. Now, surely Christ is different in that he's both in the line of David, but he's also God himself in the flesh. But only under Christ would all of the nations be, be his footstool. That's right. The other kings, some were very powerful at some point. Yes. The Israelites were feared by many other nations, but only when Christ comes will all the nations be, un, be his footstool. So we know that now, right? Because we have the whole Old Testament record to look at. I think in the Old Testament, they looked for that with every king that came to the throne. That was the expectation. Again, because of the Davidic covenant, because of the promises that were made to David. So could we not consider that a covenant between the Father and the Son? If you mean by that, that that's the covenant that he made with David and all of his descendants, yes. But not, not uniquely with Jesus Christ. No. Because it's made with David as a human being on the earth. I don't know if I'm going to word this well, so bear with me. I'm trying to understand um, the difference between the covenant they would say with Adam and like the covenant of grace. 
for instance, I understand that there has to be, you know, the works and they fail, which is a unique grace. But what would they see as different in the way it's working out with, um, like, the Mosaic Covenant, for instance? Like, if you disobey, you will be cursed. You, do you get what I'm saying? Like, they seem like they're the same kinds of relationships with God and man. You obey, you'll be blessed. You disobey, you'll be cursed. So how would they see that as a covenant of grace versus a covenant of works? Like, what makes it more grace, gracious? It's a really good question. Uh and maybe some of them, this is the danger of me trying to speak for a covenantalist, but maybe some of them would recognize that God's choice of um, Israel was by grace in the Old Testament and that they wouldn't necessarily, well, so here's the other thing with covenantalism. They would say that that law, that Mosaic law is still in force, right? And that we, at least we have to keep the moral law today. So... Our problem with that is you can't just divide up the law that way. If you're going to say that you have to keep the commandments, the Ten Commandments today, you either are under the law, the whole law, or you're not. And even if you say, I'm just going to restrict it to the Ten Commandments, well, what about the Sabbath? We don't, we don't keep the Sabbath today. And Scripture says, let no one be your judge in regard to a new moon or a Sabbath or a festival. So... I do think this idea of, you know, first it has to show that man can't do it by himself. He can't merit his salvation, and Adam showed that. I mean, Adam did that. Adam and Eve did that even without a sin nature. And that set the stage for this covenant of grace that takes in all the other covenants and that demonstrates God's relationship with all of the elect. They... They see some distinction uh, with Israel and the church, and they don't like it when you say, well, you're saying that the church replaces Israel. They don't agree with that. They would say it's an organic development from Israel to the church, and it's all part of the same group. So they, they don't make, maintain any kind of distinction between the church and Israel, and they would say, Yes, there is still a place for Israel's salvation in the future, but it's going to be coming into the church, basically. It's not separate. It's not, uh, and that's why so many of them are not pre-tribulational. It's happening over time, even through the present age. I probably, if your question was not clear, my answer was probably even less clear. But it's a big thing for them that, One, that all the redeemed are in one group, and two, that the gospel as we know it, that is, you know, we we summarize the gospel today as Christ dying for our sins. We have to turn from our sin, embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior, and then we will be saved. They would say that message was part of what every Old Testament saint embraced. I just, I I don't see how you do that. I think they, I think they're well-intentioned in that they would say, well, there's only one way of salvation, and there's only one payment for sin, and I agree with that. I agree that Christ did pay for all the sins of the world, but I don't think that was part of what the Old Testament saying embraced. I think he embraced the revelation that God had given them up to that point. With, with the one group, one people, do they use the, like the grafting language, you know, like we're grafted into 
Israel? Is that what they say? Like, I do. Yeah, I don't know exactly how they handle that, but I would, I would think they would use that as an argument that the church just organically is part of Israel, and it moved from Israel in the Old Testament to the church in the New Testament. But again, I've also read covenantalists that say that the church began back in the Garden of Eden. To me, that's hard to understand. I mean, Paul calls it a mystery of Jew and Gentile in one body, and part of their answer there is, well, it wasn't understood as well, but it was back there then, and now it's been made more clear through the epistles. David, did you have something? Yeah, absolutely. I don't either. I mean, I think the hardest one that you have to deal with is 2 Corinthians 3. And that's where Paul talks about how the ministry of the old covenant is one of death. But we're ministers of the new covenant, which is life and peace. I do think there's an answer for that. Uh, but the idea, I mean, it only makes sense that the new covenant as the ultimate covenant has to deal with the failures of all the previous covenants. And it's very explicit that it's made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So, you know, you got to keep that in mind, too, when you're looking at the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish Christians that are thinking about going back to the Mosaic Covenant. And you can't do that. You can't live in this age and say, well, Mosaic Covenant was good enough for them. It's good enough for me. I'll just stick with it. God's even made it now where you can't do it, right? Because there's no temple and there's no priesthood. and You can't keep the Mosaic Covenant. You could still during the time of the Hebrews because the temple was still standing and still had priests. But the argument of Hebrews is that Christ is superior to that system. And in this age, you've got to stay with Christ. You can't forsake him and go back to the Mosaic system. There's coming an age in the Millennial Kingdom where Christ is back on the earth. He is the king. He is the high priest. And so that's one of the changes that takes place in the law. But the, the system of worship is very much like it was under the Mosaic economy. It does. A lot of people, it doesn't make sense, right? Why? And I, I understand that side of their argument. It's They're looking at it as, the law prepared the way for Christ, and Christ came and did what he did. We don't need any of that anymore. And what do they end up doing with Ezekiel 40 through 48? They spiritualize it. They allegorize it. And they say, well, church is called the temple in the New Testament. That's what Ezekiel is talking about. Again, you don't need all those dimensions of a temple in Ezekiel if that's what you were wanting to say. And for the people that heard Ezekiel 40 through 48 in their own context with all their history up to that point. They would have not understood that in any sense. They would have understood the sense of, yes, this is what God gave us, starting with a tabernacle and then with a temple, and then ultimately there's going to be a day come where we're going to have this glorious temple, we're going to have the presence of God again in that temple, and we're going to do all these things the way we should have done them from the get-go. It doesn't... Uh, 
you know, we still we see all that being fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. It doesn't diminish the glory of the church in the present age. It does maintain the fact that the church wasn't revealed until Pentecost and only has this limited time in which it exists, and then God's plan turns back to Israel. Limited in the sense of we're taken out of the world at a certain point, but we come back and are with Christ and with the nation of Israel in the millennial kingdom. So it all comes out great in the end anyway. Uh, I think the difference is, uh, you know, how you develop your system. You're going to develop systems both ways. We're trying to develop it from what the explicit biblical covenants say through the whole Bible, and they're starting with a system that's not explicit in Scripture. They feel like, and one of the ways they justify that is they'll say, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible either. I understand that. But I I do think it's a good word. I think it's a word that um, puts together all the explicit information that we do have about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all being deity. I don't think covenantal theology does that. And I, I think they, just like what we looked at in Hosea 6, they misinterpret that to make it work. Okay. Noahic Covenant next week. Good to be here this morning. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, we do thank you for the time we've had together this morning. We thank you for the admonitions that we receive from James, particularly about not showing partiality. Help us to do that not only in a context where someone might come into our assembly here, but even in the way that we interact with people uh, in our daily activities and the places that you have us through the week. We thank you for the revelation that you've given us in the covenants. We thank you for the way that they reveal your character. Help us as we continue through our study in these in these covenants to to understand you better and become a better worshiper of you and, and be faithful in what you call us to be. We recognize that we're separate in the church from the nation of Israel, but we also recognize that both are used by you in their respective ages uh, as a means of revealing you, as a means of drawing other people to you. We pray that you'd help us this week and all that we do to be faithful and to demonstrate our love for you through obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.